This is Pastor Darren at Racine Bible Church, and you are listening to our Advent series, Fall on Your Knees. Lord, you and you alone are mighty, and you and you alone have done this great thing to shatter the serpent's head, to dispel the darkness of sin and death, and to provide salvation for your people. So in our hearts, we enthrone you. From our knees, we bow down to worship you. And with a renewed life and a new will, our hope now is in you, that we would walk in your ways and follow after you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 I encourage you to open the book to Genesis chapter 3. Open the book to Genesis chapter 3. The highlight of my Thanksgiving was opening a book. The highlight of my Thanksgiving was not the cranberry fluff as good as it was. The highlight of my Thanksgiving was opening a book with a particular little 22-month-old who was visiting us from California, and he loves me, and he knows that I love him, and he kept bringing me this book so that I would sit in uh, Grandpa's rocking chair and read him this book. And this was just the best. And as I opened up this book for my little grandson and read it to him, you ever take a, a deep breath and kind of Think about everything that's happening while you're doing a simple thing. When I had him on my lap and I opened this book and I'm reading it to him, think about everything that's happening when you're reading a little book to a little two-year-old. The book's about animals, so he's seeing the animals and maybe learning some of their characteristics and what they look like and learning their names. But beyond that, a little two-year-old is learning that a a book opens and then a book has a sequence where you turn from one page to another. Another thing that's happening is a little two-year-old maybe is beginning to understand that these markings on the page represent words that get spoken out of a mouth and then they get heard. And not only that, but they get understood. Maybe the two-year-old is beginning to learn that, well, this bigger, sort of smarter, older person knows how to, how to make these squiggles on a page make into words that I can understand. And all of this is happening when you're just reading a book. Maybe a two-year-old's even getting the picture that, well, maybe as I grow older, see, this older person is using his knowledge and his love to help me understand things. And maybe, just maybe, there's the beginning of a discipleship where a little one can begin to envision as she or he gets older, he or she can use their love and their knowledge to help other people. I think all of that's happening when you open a book. And I want to encourage you this December to open the book every day. This is why we put together this whole Advent series, this whole booklet that we made, that the the joy of opening the book, the book of God, 
every day, even if it's just for 10 minutes, to open God's book every day. And when you open God's book, take a deep breath and start to imagine all the good things that are happening when you open that book. It's more than just reading a story that admittedly you're already familiar with. You get to experience love and and, uh, all that God has planned for you. We put together this little series and uh, um, it's kind of the uh, three weeks of a, a different focus each week. The first one is that Jesus is our savior. The second one is that Jesus is our Emmanuel. The third one is that Jesus is our glorious God. The other way to say that, the first one, Jesus is our savior, is kind of the focus that in Jesus we receive forgiveness. Where we're polluted, he cleanses us. Where we're guilty, he declares us innocent. The second one, that Jesus is our Emmanuel, Another way of saying that is that in Jesus, we have comfort. In Jesus, we have healing. In Jesus, we have strength. All of these situations that turn us upside down, only God can save us from these situations. Only God can be our healer and our present help in time of trouble. And then the third one, that Jesus is our glorious king. Well, all the wrongs need to be made right. And we need God's kingdom to rule and reign in peace and in righteousness. Our text for today is the very first promise of Jesus in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And in this promise, we'll see that Jesus is our Savior. He's the one in this very context of the first sin that's committed, Jesus, this promise of Jesus that he'll save us from our sin. And you'll hear next week, uh, Darren will be preaching. I think it's from Galatians chapter four, the timing of Jesus' arrival on this planet. The week after that, I've asked Dan Miller to preach and he's gonna take that theme of Jesus being our Emmanuel, God with us in the, the, the tragic event of the slaughter of the innocents, that God knows what it is to experience that hurt and that difficulty. And then I'll wrap the series up in another four weeks from uh, Jesus as our glorious king. We'll look together at Revelation when he finally comes again. But today, our text is Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And we'll read from uh, verse 1 on down through verse 21. Let's ask for God's help. Lord God, as we open your book, may it be a word of conviction and may it be a word of comfort. May it be a word of convicting power in the lives of all those who are not yet yours that they may be saved. May it be a powerful word of comfort and even correction to those who do belong to Jesus, that we may be ever more conformed into your glorious likeness. May the seed that is sown in weakness be raised in resurrection power, the power of your word. Amen. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, 
did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you will bring forth children. Your desire shall, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Here in Genesis chapter 3, Verse 15, we have the very first promise of Jesus. You see it there in verse 15? I will put enmity between you and the woman, God says to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Matthew Henry's commentary says, here is the dawn of the gospel. No sooner was the wound given than the remedy was revealed in these precious prophetic words. Think of the context that this comes in. Genesis 3, our first fall into sin. 
right when the wound was given, the remedy was revealed in these precious prophetic words. Here, right in the garden where we fell, our God came down, our salvation to tell. Note in the text that God came down and found the man and the woman. Verse 9, the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Verses 10, 11, 12, and 13, God engages in a relational conversation with the man and the woman. God engages them in relational dialogue. He asks them questions and he receives their answers. But notice, God asks the serpent no question and receives from the serpent no answer. God engages in a relational dialogue with humanity. He does not do so with the serpent. Why is that? Perhaps it's because God's not going to redeem the serpent. God's not going to restore that relationship with that old snake. So he doesn't question him and draw him out. The serpent is spoken to. The woman and the man are spoken with. Because God's plan is a relational restoration. God's plan is salvation. When we open this book, just take a deep breath and imagine everything that's happening here. God is engaged in a relational conversation with us. He wants to ask us questions and he wants us to answer them because he wants to restore that relationship. God's not just talking to us. God is conversing with us. This is the story of salvation. In the fullness of the story, God doesn't save the serpent, but he saves the woman and the man. This is the good news of salvation. This is why 1 Timothy puts it like this. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. 1 Timothy 3 goes on to say, Great is the mystery of godliness. He, being Christ, the seed of the woman, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. When you open the book, what you're reading of is a salvation that God designed to belong to you, not to the angels, not to the demons but to all of us sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. God's plan is to save women and men, girls and boys, for Jesus came humanity to win. Jesus came in human nature. Jesus came in divine nature, united in the person of the Christ. In his human nature, he could suffer for us. In his divine nature, he could satisfy for us so that we could be saved. All of this begins to be revealed in Genesis 3.15. It's not nearly fully revealed, but we get the hints of it from here running right on through the pages of Scripture. Look at verse 15 again. What does God say? I will put enmity. I will put enmity. Here, enmity... Think about this. Enmity or hostility 
is promised as the blessed gift from God. That ought to make you scratch your head. Enmity and hostility is promised as the blessed gift coming from the Prince of Peace. What's that all about? Well, this is a promise. God is promising. He's speaking to the serpent, but in a sense, he's speaking to Eve and her seed. And he's promising in his sovereign grace to alter the relationship of affection between the serpent and the woman. God is promising here that he can change the way you feel about what you do. God is promising here that he can change the choices that you make by reordering your disordered desires. You say, really, that's all here? Let, let me show you how. It's, you, you see it in the context. God's promise here is that he can change the choices you make by reordering your disordered desires. Because look at the preceding narrative. We read it. The woman is in perfect fellowship and friendship with the man, and the woman is in wonderful fellowship and friendship with God. And in an instant, she turns from her oneness with her husband to follow the plan of the snake. And she turns from her friendship with God to enmity against God by following the hiss of the serpent. She left her friendship with God and her oneness with her husband and gave her allegiance and her affection to the serpent for that forbidden fruit. So by placing this enmity right after that transfer of allegiance, God is promising that in his sovereign grace, he can change the human heart. He can alter Eve's allegiance and he can alter yours. You know, our problem isn't just that we sin. Our problem is that we love sin. Our problem isn't just that we sin. Our problem is that we love sin. And I, I, know, I know so many people who want to escape the consequences of sin. I don't know very many people who really hate sin. Those are two different things. We often want to escape the consequences of our sin. But to become a person who really hates sin as sin, this takes a new enmity. This takes a new affection. Do you love sin or do you hate sin? Christian poet John Newton has a poem, the first line of which, in evil long I took delight. What a first line. You hear what he says? In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood who fixed his languid eye on me as near his cross I stood. A second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I die that thou may live. In the promise of the Savior and the provision of Jesus' cross, and then in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit as the victorious fruit of Christ's resurrection from the grave, human hearts are altered and we no longer delight in evil, but a new heart is given to us. 
So let me just ask you this, at this Advent season, where is your enmity going to be? What are you going to hate? Maybe it sounds funny to say, Lord, help me to hate the right things. But I think it's a biblical prayer. Psalm 119, verse 104. Through your word, I gain understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. God, give me righteous enmity. God, give me holy animosity against the serpent and all of his twisted designs. Help me, Lord, to love and hate properly. Notice also in Genesis 3.15, God says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, that's the seed going all the way to Christ, he shall bruise your head or he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. Notice, the one seed will bruise or crush the head, the other seed will bruise the heel. Now, I don't know a lot about snakes, but I love a good Western movie and I've seen enough cowboy movies to know that the cowboy usually gets bit right where the boot meets the blue jean. The only way for that cowboy to get bit in the head is if he's laying down by the campfire at night and that snake gets him in the head. But generally, as he's moving around in the Wild West, he's, the, the snake is going to bite on the heel. But the heel crushing the head represents a death blow. And so we see in the fullness of time that Christ is wounded, even killed. But Christ's death is, as it were, a wounding of the heel. Though it was a full death, it was not a death unto death. It was a death unto resurrection life. So Christ's feet, even his heels, nailed through on the cross. But he rose again victorious from the grave. Listen to how Colossians 2 puts it. Colossians 2, verses 13 through 16. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made you alive together with him by canceling the record of debt that stood out against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, having nailed it to the cross. And then it says this, Colossians 2, 15. Victoriously, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over over them in his cross. That's what Jesus did in crushing the snake's head. He came in his first advent to die on the cross and be bruised in his heel, but he crushed the serpent's head in so doing. And Jesus is coming again. In his first advent, Jesus bowed low beneath the weight of the cross. We are awaiting, and may it be soon, his glorious second advent when every knee will bow to him. Jesus came in his first advent as the man of sorrows. He will come again to rejoice in victory with his people and even to laugh at the downfall of his enemies because he was wounded in the heel. Now we fall on our knees and worship him and await his final return. But look again at Genesis 3.15. God says, I'll put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. I'll put enmity. There's not just this immediate enmity between one woman and one serpent, but between all of the offspring. A perpetual quarrel is promised here. A continuing 
conflict is revealed here. A continuing conflict. The seed immediately following in the narrative of Genesis is Cain and Abel. And this animosity is expressed in fratricide. But then we have the seed of Abram. Genesis 9, Genesis 12, Genesis 15. And the promised seed of Abraham, the father of many nations, or the father of a, of a great nation, Israel. All the way through to the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, where God promises in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, of, of your seed, he says to David, there will be no end. And David's greater seed comes to be Jesus the Christ. We have these stories converging in, this, in the one storyline of Scripture. The history of Israel from Adam to Seth to Noah to Abraham to David to Jesus. The story of Jesus being the coming one who would crush the serpent's head and slay the dragon. You'll see those in that Advent booklet even this week as you go through those scriptures that promise the coming of Jesus. This perpetual quarrel, it's all over scripture. Listen to it in Hebrews 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Listen to how Romans 5 puts this cosmic contention between Adam and his seed, Christ, the serpent, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. But the free gift is not like the trespass. If many died through the one man's trespass, much more has the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous." And listen to how this perpetual quarrel is told in 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5 says, Be sober-minded, church. Be watchful. For your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Be firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, 1 Peter 5.10, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. <clears throat> I don't know why, but I do know that for many of us, struggles against sin, uh, family dysfunction, pain, uh, these struggles amplify around Thanksgiving and Christmas. 1 Peter 5 says, resist the devil, be firm in your faith. Believer, believer, here in December at Advent when you're around a world that makes things difficult and even family that has struggles in it, know this. Um, an unbelieving worldly person may have what looks like peace. An unbelieving worldly person may have what looks like peace, but that's the peace of a calloused conscience, and it's the peace of a deadened, stupefied soul that isn't even alive. And the believer who is waging 
fighting the good fight and waging the just warfare, the believer is engaged in this struggle against Satan and against sin and against flesh and against unforgiveness and against all the rest of it. But know that you will only suffer a little while and the God of all grace will call you to eternal glory. A perpetual quarrel is initiated here in Genesis 3 and verse 15. So we see at least all of this in Genesis 3.15 as we open up the book and think about all the other implications that are here. But let me ask you to read Genesis 3.15 and stop thinking about uh, like what it means in your life and the possible implications for you. And let me ask you to just imagine for a minute, what did this sound like to that old snake? Because he heard it. Satan hears God say, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I don't claim to know what's going on in that old serpent's mind. But I imagine the last line was the only one that stuck with him. Remember? And you shall bruise his heel and you shall bruise his heel. So Satan says, what? I get to bruise the Redeemer's heel? I get to bruise Emmanuel's heel? And in his diabolical, destructive plans, in the coiling considerations of the malicious mind of Satan, I wonder how he wondered, how can I bruise the Savior's heel? I'm speculating, but imagine. I think it's somewhat, somewhat sanctified speculation. It's as if the demonic powers think, well, as long as God is in heaven, pure spirit, how can I bruise him? How can I get to him? How can I bruise him? As long as the Trinity remains enthroned in heaven, in inapproachable and unassailable power and glory, how could, how, how could I touch him? How could I wound him? How could I bruise him? I can't. And then, maybe not that day, but maybe as more of the promises of Emmanuel begin to be revealed, Satan begins to realize, well, what if he leaves heaven's sanctuary and fortress and comes to the earth, not as spirit, but as flesh? The line of uh, poet W.H. Auden, how could the eternal do a temporal act, the infinite become a finite fact? I'm imagining as if Satan says, well, if God's eternal and infinite, how could I bruise him? How could the eternal do a temporal act, the infinite become a finite fact? And so in the fullness of time, we have finally in the gospel narrative, the birth of the Savior. And that old serpent who deceived Eve, was he not behind the deceptive malevolence of the Herodian throne to say, well, now that the baby's here, let's go ahead and slaughter the babies. 
Then once Jesus grows, we have his baptism narrative, and immediately from the banks of the Jordan, he withdraws to the wilderness, and Satan tempts him there. The serpent was always there to bruise Jesus, to nip at his heels, to derail Jesus from the outset of his ministry all the way through the Garden of Gethsemane. We have we, every demon possession almost. is like the, the demons are, are roiling and boiling over in this, in this satanic plot to stop the Savior. There is so much war in the Christian story. There's so much war in the Christian story. Here from Genesis 3. You'll hear shades of it in Darren's message next week from Galatians. You'll hear it again in Dan's message in two weeks, Lord willing, from from the Gospels. You'll hear it again in mine when we conclude in Revelation 21. The serpent's there to tempt Jesus, to bruise Jesus, to derail Jesus from the outset of his ministry. Don't go to the cross, Jesus. Just bow to me. We have all these demonic possessions until, what is it, in, uh, in Mark Five, Jesus gets in the boat. It's, it's, it's almost like Jesus is a, it's almost like Jesus is a, a, an army ranger, and he's like, he's tired of picking off these demons one by one, and he gets in a boat, and he goes across to the Gadarenes, the Gerasenes, and he finds where the whole host of demons have inhabited this one crazy guy. In that narrative, it's not that the people bring that guy to Jesus and Jesus is like, oh, what's going on here? Jesus gets in the boat like to go, to go on this special ops mission to go find this guy. I, I don't know. It's like Satan's trying to bruise Jesus' heel and all these demons are like Satan's kind of, uh, kind of forces in reserve. And so Jesus just gets in the boat to go to them. And, and, and Jesus goes there as a warrior, 1 John 3, 18, the reason the Son of Man has appeared is to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3, 18, did you hear that, church? The reason the Son of Man has appeared is to destroy the works of the devil. Satan makes this assault on Jesus in his temptation. Satan makes this assault on Jesus in the demonic realms. But Jesus, far from being uh, wounded or set back on his heels by these assaults, Jesus brings the battle to this demoniac. It's as if Jesus fulfills the words of Jeremiah 20. I have heard the whispering of many, terror on every side. Denounce him, let us denounce him. All around are watching for my fall, saying, perhaps he will be deceived so that we may prevail against him and take our revenge against him. But the Lord is with me as a dread champion. Therefore, my persecutors shall stumble and fall. They will be utterly ashamed and they will fall for the Lord is with me. Jeremiah 20. Isaiah 42, the Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry and he will prevail against his enemies. Jesus has appeared to destroy the works of the devil. All this in this promise of enmity, this ongoing cosmic conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the of the serpent. The Lord Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And there's this promise of victory, even in Genesis 3.15, because the devil shall wound your heel. 
but you coming Savior, Lion of Judah, shall crush his head. It's almost as if, I don't know if someone's going to come at you with a, like the, pro, the classic problem of evil this Christmas, if you have a chance to share with an atheist or an agnostic family member. Why is there so much evil in the world? It's almost as if Genesis 3.15 tilts that question from the very beginning of the book. Genesis 3 explains why there's evil in the world. That's not the question. After Genesis 3.15, the only question is exactly how and exactly when will God bring to pass his promise to put an end to all of that evil in the world? But the promise is there. The promise is there. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And so we and all of creation fall on our knees in worship. But as Jesus destroys the works of the devil and as Jesus' spirit puts a, puts a sanctified animosity in your heart against the works of the devil, you don't stay on your knees. You rise up and you join Jesus. So we fall on our knees in worship and then as we worship Jesus, Jesus lifts us up and he sends us out to overcome sin in our lives, to, to find uh, under-resourced, at-risk, single moms in our community and to give them the resources that they need through CareNet. So many ways that Jesus calls us into his service. We trust him and we bow before him as our dread warrior who has crushed the dragon's head. But then we walk with him where there's loneliness, where there's sinfulness, where there's need, and he uses us to, to share his hope, to share his life, to share his love. Oh, the Son of Man has appeared to destroy the works of the devil. What is there to do but to fall on our knees before such a Savior and then to rise up in his victory and walk with him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, hear your children as they pray. Draw us to worship you, Lord Jesus. And falling on our knees in worship, may our affections be renewed. May our affections and our loves be reordered by your Spirit. And so may our choices be sanctified. And Lord Jesus, fill us that we might love you and serve you, bringing hope into this city, in this community, in the mighty name of Jesus. Jesus, hear your children as they pray. And hearing, bless. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.